I'd like to start by uh, showing appreciation to all of you who came out here today and to everyone that is listening live to the uh, various speeches and divrei Torah that are here in, mer- in the merit of what was an extraordinary man, a man who really was born, it feels like, into a world that he didn't belong in. Uh, he, he was someone who acted in the way that you read books about people, you know, back in the times of Tanakh, in the way that they interacted with people around them. And we were, gra- we were granted a great kindness, uh, not just this synagogue, but this generation, to be able to have had someone uh, like Raphael, Edmon, Ezra, Ben Esther walk amongst us. And I think that there's something very special about gathering today before Hanukkah, which is a holiday which uh, describes the idea of the power of just a few people being able to spread so much light that today the world knows the name of this holiday. You know, you meet people who are not Jewish, they ask you, they say, Happy Hanukkah, right? Thank you, Azekah Baruch. They say Happy Hanukkah. They they uh, they they want you to they want you to know that they know they're part of the Jew crew. Like you know you uh, you say Happy Holidays. They're like Happy Hanukkah. You know it's always amazing, right? Like they, I know you. I see you. I have a Judar. I can tell that you are Jewish. And I'm like, really? What gave it away? Okay. So the amazing thing is the amazing thing is that that began because of one family. One family decided to do something a little bit different. One family decided to fight back against the status quo. And today, the world knows the name of Hanukkah. It's amazing, if you think about that. And that truly is where we are as well with regards to this wonderful family, uh, Edmund and Lili Shibatela Haim Tovim Arukim, and the amount of chesed that they have done. You know, I remember being in London in Chazak at one of our dinners, and... Chazak is an amazing organization in London, and what they've done is remarkable. But I want to bring one point which I think drives home what it is that we are, in many ways, not just memorializing today, but that we are celebrating today. I remember at our dinner, you know, you had, we would do stuff with little kids, and we would do stuff with teenagers, and we would do stuff with young professionals and young families and with synagogues. But you know this, the phrase goes, and never the twain shall meet. You know, quite often the older people didn't know that we were doing stuff with the younger. The people who weren't connected with the Jewish community at all, which we were visiting in non-Jewish schools, had never met the more religious people that we were also running events for. And then suddenly at this dinner, all of a sudden everyone looked around, they were like, oh, you're also part of this? You're also part of this? I think it's crucial to understand the amount and the breadth of charities that are being supported. Uh, And it's not just random, you know, philanthropic giving. It's not just organizations that have benefited uh, from the kindness. It's uh, people of all types and stripes, Jewish and non-Jewish, healthy and and, and unwell, very religious, not religious at all. They're giving spans uh, an incredibly wide spectrum. And I think to celebrate this today, I'd like to share with you some words of this amazing holiday, a day where the few can make such a tremendous difference. You know, everything, everything, everything is in the Torah. Everything. Everything, everything. Who you will marry, 
the children you will have, the story of your life, the deeds that you will accomplish, your greatness, your challenges, everything is in the Torah. You just have to know where to look. And sadly, in our day and age, there are very few today that know where to look. But there were times gone by where someone would ask the Chacham, where is it? And the Chacham would be able to point at the Pasuk and show them where their story was part of the Torah's story. And that is obvious if one knows what the Torah is. The Torah is the eternal life story of the beings that came to this earth to be able to act out its plays upon the world's stage. So it makes sense. The story of Hanukkah, says the Midrash, is therefore also encoded in the Torah, but right at the beginning of time. And the land, the earth was unformed, it was void. And a great darkness stood over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was sweeping over the water. We're describing a sense of sheer darkness, of sheer nothingness. All there is, is God, and God sits in the dark. I guess you learn from that, that it's godly to be cheap and turn the lights off. Okay. Vechoshech zegalut yavan. Says the Midrash, what is this choshech, this darkness? This is galut yavan, the experience of the Greeks subjugating the Jewish people. And why is it called choshech? For they darkened the eyes of the Jewish people with their decrees. What was the decree that darkened the eyes of the Jewish people? That therefore we describe the terminology used to describe Yavan is the word pure darkness. For they would say to them, Kitvu Al keren ashor, write on the horn of an ox, she'en lachem chelek be'elohei Yisrael, that you have no portion in the God of Israel. Interestingly enough, the reason why they're called darkness is not because they would uh, forcibly uh, remove the, Jew, the, the Torah from the Jewish people. It's not because they would kill any baby or family that had a brit milah. That's not part of it. It's not because they put an avodah zarah in the Beit HaMikdash. Not part of it. None of the other terrible gezerot of Yavan are the reason why they're called choshech. Why they're called choshech, what was their darkness? Their darkness was that they made the Jews write on the horn of an ox, we have no portion in the God of Israel. And there are many explanations for this cryptic midrash, but today I'm going to share one with you. Today, an ox doesn't necessarily carry for us much import. It's not something that is part of our day-to-day. But at the time, an ox was used for plowing. They would stand behind the ox and walk along with the ox and plow all day long whilst they were doing all the work that they needed to do. And when they were finished the plowing season, 
They would use the ox to drag every items from one part of the barn to the other. They would hitch up the yoke to it and they would have it drag bundles of wheat or vines of grapes. It was the thing that man stood not on. You don't ride an ox like you ride a donkey or a horse or whatever. You stand directly behind it. What the Greeks knew and what today social psychologists understand is that we are profoundly impacted by things that are part of our day-to-day. Show someone an ad again and again and again and again and again, and eventually he'll be hungry or thirsty and think Coca-Cola or McDonald's. That's how it works. You see it all the time, it's in your face all the time, until eventually something happens where it permeates your brain. You don't even know or realize that you're thinking it, but you're thirsty and you think, I could use a cold Coca-Cola right now. No one ever thinks, I could use a generic cola-flavored soda. No one ever thinks that. Coca-Cola, McDonald's, Calvin Klein. This is how we think. Why do we think that way? Because it's there all the time. One of my favorite comedians, his name is Stephen Wright. And he talked about the power of subliminal advertising. And he says, one time I saw a subliminal advertising executive, but only for a second. Either way, point is, <laughs> he, 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 he realized that even for one second, today, if you're in branding or marketing, you'll know that people will pay fortunes of money. That while you're watching a movie, you know, there's a scene between a mother and her daughter, you know, a very touching scene. And, you know, and the daughter just, you know, really broke her leg and she won't be able to run in the Olympics. And the mother will come in and say, honey, let me get you a drink. Bring her a Coca-Cola. You know how much Coke pays for that? Product placement. And we don't realize when you go to the movies, you're watching a TV show and you're paying, you're paying for the right for people to sell you. That's what's happening today. The Greeks understood that what we surround ourselves with, what we expose ourselves to, penetrates the brain. So you want to know the darkness of Yavan. The darkness of Yavan is not killing children, however heinous and terrible that is. The darkness of Yavan is not stealing books of Torah from us, however heinous that is. Because you know what we do when they took the Torah away from us? We figure out a way. We go to caves. We go to different places. If someone's going to kill me for a brit milah, what will I do? I'll figure out a way to do a brit milah where no one can tell. I'll figure out a way to bring my baby wrapped up in a blanket to a barn outside of a city. That's what happens. I remember reading a story from, uh, about Rev Silver who used to come to the Soviet Union to do Brit Milas. And he gets to one place, and everyone spreads the word he's doing Brit Milas in the barn outside. Everyone starts coming. You know, grown men would come, and they would do Brit Milah, one after the next. And all of a sudden, a woman comes in, and she's panting, and she's bringing a little bundle. She walks in, she unwraps the bundle, and who is it? It's a two-year-old boy. There hadn't been a mohel in the city since then. She says, I heard you were here, I brought the baby. They do Brit Milah on this child, two years old. Baby's crying. They hand the baby back to the mother. The mother kisses the baby on the forehead, and she faints, drops the child. 
Everyone jumps. They grab Baruch Hashem, the child's okay. They get some cold water. They bring the mother back. They wake her up. The, mo- the mother wakes up. She comes to. And the Mohel says, you know, I've never seen such emotion at a Brit Milah before. I handed you the baby. You fainted. And the mother said, when I was pregnant, I prayed to God for only one thing, that this child should not be a boy. She was Ashkenaz, that's why. I'm joking, sorry. Can't, can't help myself. Do you, know, do you know why I can't help myself? Because from the time I'm a little kid, I've been told in the Syrian community, Abu Sabi. What does Abu Sabi mean? You should father a boy. I used to tell them, you know I'm like eight. <laughs> Fathering a boy would be both awkward and illegal. <laughs> Drill it in. Drill it in. So what happens? She says, I prayed for only one thing, that I should have a baby girl. Why? Because there's no mohel. And how could I have a Jewish child without a mohel? She says, but Hashem didn't answer my prayers. He abu sabid me. And when they handed me my son for the first time, I knew that this was going to be a challenge. How am I going to get a brit milah for my child? So I thought, you know what's going to make sure that I get a milah as soon as possible? I swore to God and my son that day that I would not kiss my child until he had a brit milah. She says, every time I heard the rumor of a mohel, I would travel to other cities, but I never managed to catch him. And you know what drove me every time was that I was waiting so long. Could you believe that? You handed me my baby. I kissed him on the forehead. That's an explosion of a mother's love for two years. On the spot, I collapsed. Do you understand this, Rabotai? You try and stop us from having Brit Milah, we'll figure out a way. You try and stop us from learning Torah, we'll figure out a way. <clears throat> but put that on the little thing, on the horn. Let me see it. Make me see it every day. And you know what will happen? Eventually, I start to think I don't have a portion in the God of Israel. I don't even know where the thought is coming from. That was the darkness of Yavan. That they could take this away from the Jewish people. You know, the Chida writes... <clears throat> That our parasha, Miketz, is always the parasha in which falls the holiday of Hanukkah. <coughs> and he explains, the reason is that Miketz stands for Mamon, Kol, Som. Money, prayers, and fasting. It's the three letters, three words that are written above the words in the Mahzor, if you say it. What moves when someone has a decree against them, what moves that decree from falling upon them is Mamon, Tsom, and Kol. Miketz is Teshuva, Tefila, Sedakah. This does not just mean Rabotai. A person gives money, and I can prove it. Can I prove this to you? That tzedakah, in this expression, that saves from death, that saves from a gezerah, it doesn't just mean money. And kol 
voice does not just mean prayers. And teshuvah doesn't just mean saying, I'm sorry. Rather, each one of these three things represents a category. What do they mean? <clears throat> Mamon means when you give something that you have for someone else. Where do we find this in the words of Chazal? Our rabbis teach us, Kabed et Hashem mehonecha. Honor God from your wealth. Hon means wealth. The Gemara says, Al tikre mehonecha, from your wealth, Ela michunecha. From that which you were graced with, from the talents, from the skills that God blessed you, michunecha, from whatever God blessed you with. If you use that, that's the same. Hon and chen are the same. First one is mamon. What do, you, what do you have to give to another? Are you giving from yourself to someone else? The second one, kol, means when you use your voice. It doesn't just mean prayers. It means when you use your voice to achieve change. When you speak words of truth to others. When you communicate values to others. That's kol. Torah is kol. Tefillah is called, all of that is part of the voice of Yaakov. And finally, Psalm, the last one, Psalm means to fast. But the word Psalm, fast, is not unique because we found that it is aligned with Teshuvah. The word idea of Psalm means when a person has a need, when they feel uncomfortable for something, when they are able to dig inside of themselves and give up, Give up, not give from what you have, but give up almost a piece of yourself. Teshuvah is when a person takes a character trait which is ingrained inside of them and flips the switch and says, I'm going to do it differently. I want the honor, I'm going to walk away from the honor. I'm greedy, I need the money, give away the money. Teshuvah and Tzom means when I can look at something that I want, that I desire, and I do what I want to do. I do the right thing anyway, even though there's a cost. So this miketz that falls out on Chanukah teaches us that there are three things that save us from galut. Three things that save us from darkness and bring light into the world. And I want to talk with you today about a few of them using as a prism the great man that we are gathered here today to remember and to celebrate. I spoke with uh, someone, a couple of people, about this great man. In looking for some uh, material, in looking for some expressions and examples that would bring a pro across this idea of how one can give. Now what's fascinating to me is that in this week's parasha, when Yosef is redeemed from prison, the Midrash says on that words, Ketz san lachoshech. God gave an end to the darkness of Yosef. What does ketz sam lachoshech call, as we said, and psalm? What happened to the mem of the ketz? What happened to the mamon? How come Yosef didn't give money to get out of the darkness of his prison? And the answer is that Yosef didn't have any money. So the mem had to disappear because he had to bring his redemption without that money. But as I said earlier, not having the money doesn't mean that a person doesn't have miketz. 
All Yosef is left with is Ketz. But what does he do with that? Our Chachamim tell us that Yosef's sojourn in prison actually redeemed the Jewish people entire. We were supposed to be in Egypt for 400 years. How long did we spend in Egypt? Only 210. 190 are missing, which is the gematria of the word Ketz. Yosef sits for us. Yosef sits in prison for us. Because when Yosef starts this story, the angel asks him a historic question. He says, my dear Yosef, Ma, what do you want, Ma, tam, what do you want, Antam Mevakesh? And he says, et achai anochi mevakesh. I live, I live for my brothers. Edmund never found joy in this world, like when he was helping someone else. Et achai anochi mevakesh. I want to share with you something remarkable. When Yosef has no money, the word mamon itself gives us this hint. The same letters of the word mamon are the words mimenu, when a person gives from themselves. And what does that look like when someone gives from themselves? Today, you have lots of people giving charity. And today, it is something which is very common, to the point that there are giving pledges out there where people will give away vast sums or even almost all of their money. But there was once a time when that was not the case, where it was very difficult to find people that were giving money. And not for the sake of publicly announcing that they were the big nadvanim. They would give, and they would give only for the sake of giving. This was a man that had an entire bank and an international bank waiting for him. And when he would come to the office in the morning, before he would do a single transaction, he would spend a half hour reviewing all the sedaka requests. Before he looked at the balance sheets of the bank, he wanted to see what his brothers needed from him. What did the Jewish people need from him? But it wasn't only with the money that he gave. I want to share with you what it means to give from yourself especially for us here today. You know, our Midrash tells us that there's a discrepancy that is noticed in the creation of the world. We find that every day God said, Kitov, this uh, day, and God saw Kitov, it was very good. But if you look at the second day, you'll notice it does not say the words Kitov. It doesn't say it. Did you know that? It doesn't say Kitov. How come it doesn't say Kitov? Answers the Midrash. You know why? Because on the second day, Machloket was created. On the second day, Machloket was created. Machloket was created. There was no mother-in-laws on the... No, no, sorry. <laughs> second day, Machloket was created? What are you talking about? There's no people to fight. What are we talking about? Says the Midrash. What does it mean? There should be a heaven, a firmament, in the waters, in between the waters. And it should separate between water and water. There's water here on earth, yamim. In the word yamim, which means oceans, you have the word mine. But there's also, besides for the lower waters, there's also in upper waters. The upper waters, the heavens are called 
Shamayim, which means there is water. There's Mayim Elyonim, water on top, the upper waters, and there's Mayim Tachtonim, there's waters on the, which are the lower waters. So since you find a Havdalah, a separation between the upper waters and the lower waters, we are finding Machloket, we are finding fights. No Kitob, can't be good. Fighting can never be good. We don't have the word Kitob. Asks the Sefer Shivim Panim La Torah. I don't understand. This makes zero sense. Zero sense does this make. Sorry, that was an order for the new release. Okay. What is it? Well, I don't understand. Go back in the first day. The first day where it does say Kitov. Look and you'll see. Vayar Elokim et Aor Kitov. Vayavdel Elokim ben Aor ben Achoshech. So you find Havdalah, separation on the first day too. So if the reason why it doesn't say Kitov on the second day is because there was separation, there was separation on the first day too. And on that day, God does say it's good. And the Shivim Panim, the Torah answers something which is, oh, it's genius. It's genius and it's heartbreaking. There's a difference between light and dark. In fact, in the morning, we even bless God for the ability to tell the difference between light and dark. There's a difference between day and night, between light and dark. So to separate between light and dark is not machloket. It's not a separation. To separate between light and dark is not a, a negative thing. It's a positive thing. To recognize what is good and what is bad. What is bright, what is dark. What is uh, moral and what is immoral. But lahavdil ben ma'im la ma'im. This ma'im and that ma'im is the same ma'im. It's the same water. The nature of water is that it interacts one with the other. The nature of water is that it flows. This drop doesn't stay different from this drop. It's all part of the same ocean. In fact, we know that when God separated the waters, the lower waters turned to God and said, Minen luen. Imagining the, the waters spoke Arabic. I'm not, you know, it's not a prejudiced thing. I'm just imagining that that's how they speak. But maybe they spoke Yiddish. I don't know. Usidos. Maybe that's what they said. Actually, that actually sounds much better. For some reason, when I imagine the voice of water, it sounds better in the Yiddish. Pusidos! Anyway. <laughs> and what does Hashem say? Hashem says, you're right. I'm going to pay you back. Lower waters found in the oceans, I'm going to take from you. I'm going to take from you. What do we have in the oceans? We have salt. And on every Jewish table... And on the Jewish Mizbeach, when they sacrifice korbanot, al-kol korbanecha takrib melach. That comes from the lower waters. But you see, God needed to justify to the lower waters why they were on the bottom and they were on the top. There was no difference between them. To find Havdalah, a separation between someone who's the same as you, and to be elyonim above them, and to look down upon them. That is machloket, that is not kitob. 
It is a necessary evil for creating the earth, but God would not call that tob. I think the greatest sacrifice of mamon, mimenu, as I said earlier, was the fact that you could be human royalty. You could be someone that is so far above and ahead of everybody else, but feel like someone who is penniless is exactly the same as you. And that was what Edmund did. His wealth was staggering. But he felt comfortable talking to the guy on the street, making sure that he'd pay and give out money to every person sitting on the floor on Madison Avenue. One time he was walking down Madison Avenue right outside here, and he was walking with uh, someone, and the, he turns to, this, to the guy and he says, he says give him, let's give him some money. And the guy says to him, the guy, he's a bum. Look at him. You can see he's a drug addict. Why should we give this guy any money? And listen to his words. Edmund Alava Shalom said, you know what his life was like? You know what put him here? Why he's an addict? Why he's on the street? That's why his middle name, his Hebrew name was Ezra. Because he was born, Raphael, to heal and born to help. You see a bum on the street that said, we all walk by and we say, what do we do? But who are we to judge them? Ben Maim Lamaim. Are you the upper waters and he's the lower waters? Who are you? You were granted, you were graced, you were blessed with opportunity. But who says that you'd have been any different if, that's, if that was your life? You know, Rav Ben Sion Musafi writes that the parasha of Miketz, it's the parasha of Chanukah because it symbolizes Chanukah. Because Paro has a dream, two dreams, both with stalks of wheat and with cows. And in each dream, it was the thin, the weak cows that swallowed up the whole cows. And that is the story of Chanukah. Rabin biyad me'atim. The many in the hands of the weak. The strong giborim biyad halashim. The strong in the hands of the weak. The many in the hands of the few. Not like the labor party. Rabutai, that story, that dream, we were saved because we acted. We acted in an outward expression as Jews. We said, you don't want to kill us. You're happy to let us live as, as Greeks. So why don't we take Judaism and hide it? If we would have just done it inside, inside the houses, inside the caves, we would have survived the Greeks. No one needed to go to war. Learn Torah in the house. Light your back handles, close the curtains. No, our strength is when the weak walk out onto the shore and try to devour the many. Where the few say to the many, I don't care what the world looks like, these are not my values. And that was <clears throat> the power of the Chashmonaim, and it was the power of the great man that we were here to uh, to celebrate. You know, Paro, he calls Yosef out of the pit and he says, Yosef, um, I want you to come and interpret my dream. And what I always found interesting is 
that the Midrash tells us that when he called all the people, each time they would come and they would say to him all these different interpretations. He calls his khartumim, he calls his necromancers, he calls his magicians, he calls his interpreters, and he says, this is my dream, what's the answer? What does it mean? And you know what they would say? Oh, paro, seven cows, that's like seven daughters. I don't know what they thought of daughters at the time. Right, he said seven cows, seven daughters, and then they're going to be good daughters, and then you're going to lose the daughters. Paro's like, no, that's not, that's not what it means. And then the next guy comes, he says, Paro, you're going to conquer seven countries, and then you're going to lose the second countries, seven countries. He says, no, that's not what it means. You're going to find seven treasures, and then you're going to lose the seven treasures. That's not what it means. How did Paro know what it meant? You had a dream, you don't know what it means, the guy says it, it's arbitrary. How do you know this guy's right and that guy's wrong? Then Yosef comes along and says, no, no, it's seven years of famine, seven years of plenty, followed by seven years of famine. The seven years of famine swallow the seven years of plenty to the point where you can't even tell that they were once there. How did he know that Yosef was right? How did he know that his khartoumim were wrong? And the secret is actually found in the pasuk itself. It was the morning, and he was very distressed. He called all of the sorcerers of Egypt, all its wise men. He tells them his dream, and there's no one who could interpret them. I just fooled you. Anyone who knows the pasuk knows that there's an extra word. There was no one who interpreted them to Pharaoh. It just sounds like we're saying that they couldn't interpret it to him. But Pharaoh said, I'm not a man. I'm a king. Seven daughters, that's for me. Seven countries also provides for me. For me it provides. Seven treasures for me. But if I'm the king of Egypt, it must be that when I dream, I dream for my people. So when Yosef comes and says that the seven years represent seven years of famine, that are going to follow seven years of plenty, and my people are going to be hungry on the streets, and if I don't gather that food, what's going to be with them? Paro knows, now that you said this, no one as wise as you. Rabotai, ah. Come on! We learn, which means from my enemies make me wise. Let us learn from Paro together today. When a king dreams, he doesn't dream about himself. When a king dreams, he dreams about his people. Because the job as a king is to look after their folk. We as a people are called Mamlechet Kohanim Vagoy Kadosh. All of you are kings and queens. And our dreams cannot be only about ourselves. Because a king doesn't dream about himself. So when we talk about the Nisim and the miracles that we want to bring to the world, is that for us? It's not for us. Every other nation. The bringing of the Messiah. What was it about? It was about them having dominion over the whole world. But says the Gemara in Sanhedrin, Lo nabu. Our Nevi'im did not prophesy about the days of the Messiah in order that we should be in control. That's not what it was about. 
It's not about the Jews having money. It's not about the Jews having power. As much as the media would love you to think that that is our only goal. It's exhausting, isn't it, running the world? It's exhausting, isn't it, running the banks and TV and everything? That's what they think we do. That's not what the Messiah is for us. The Messiah for us is to bring Torah to a dark world. To be chalashim, to be weak, to be few, but to change the course of the world forever. That is what it means. And I always ask my children when we sit down and light the Chanukah candles, before we make the Beracha on the first night, I say to them, these lights symbolize a tiny light that pushes away darkness. It goes back to the beginning of time, there was a darkness. And what did God do in that darkness? He created light. We are partners with God tonight where we bring a little bit of light and we shake and we shake the earth and we chase away the darkness that surrounds us. So I ask my children, I want you to think, means that they fought it and now we have to fight it. In what way are you fighting darkness today? This is what I ask my children every year in Hanukkah. In what way are you bringing light now? What are you going to do differently now? And they think, and when everyone has something, then we light. That's Ruach Elohim Merachefet Al Amai. When the Spirit of God, it hovers, it sweeps across all the waters. Not a water above and not a water below, but all the waters being equal, intermingling, mixing with each other. No one better or worse than anybody else. And I would like to end with this. Rabbi Tversky is a magnificent man. He's a scholar, but he's also a psychologist, and he works on helping people who struggle with terrible addictions, with terrible problems. And he went into a prison, and he's sitting there talking with hardened criminals. I don't know if you know this, but in prison, when someone gets out, it is incredibly likely that that will not be the last time that they will be in prison. It's a little bit like that song that some of us know. You can check out any time you like, but you can never leave. Welcome. 68% of people who check out of prison, in the statistics they took last, I think it was back in 2005, 68% of prisoners that they polled would be back in prison within three years, within two years a full 77% would be back in three. So he sat there talking to the prisoners and he asked them, why is it that this happens? Why? You want to be on an uncomfortable bed stuck in a prison cell? You know, you want to be served this kind of food? You want someone to tell you when you can get up and when you can go to the bathroom and when you can go outside and see the light of day? Is that what you want? It's not what you want, he says. It's because you don't think you're good enough to be able to succeed out there in the world. He says, but I'm here to tell you that the behavior that you're exhibiting, it's beneath all of you. That's what he said. You're better than this. You're brighter than this. And he's giving this talk, and there's hardened criminals 
who are sitting there and they're crying. Because someone thinks actually that this is not who they are, that their circumstances made me made them this way in certain cases, that maybe there was a possibility of leading a different or a better life. But there's one boy, his name is Josh, and he's sitting there with his hands crossed, and he's shaking his head the whole time. And finally, the rabbi finishes, he says, Rabbi, you're talking a load of baloney. He did not use the word baloney. <laughs> Everyone was very, you know, affected. They said, how could you say this? The rabbi is here, da 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 da, da. And Josh says, well, what do you want from my life? The guy's talking, he doesn't know what he's talking about. He doesn't know anything about me. He thinks I'm a good person. Does he know what I've done? Does he know where I've been? The rabbi says to him, I think you're mistaken, but it sounds to me like this is a conversation we should have in private. Josh says, okay. They go out to another room, and Josh starts to tell him about the time when he was 10 years old, when his father checked out, and his mother couldn't care less. And the kids were at home and they didn't have food because the mother would just go on drug trips. And they'd be asking neighbors until eventually neighbors called social services and at the age of 10, he says, my sister and I were sent into foster care. There's only two words there, foster care, he says, and one of them is a lie. From the first house I went to, I was sent to a house where they had seven children and he was fostering another five. Only reason why they had us was because they would get the foster check. My parents, he said, my foster parents wouldn't give us any food. If there was any food at all, moldy bread, a little bit of something, whatever they had in the house, and then we would be sent off to school. I didn't dare ask for any extra food, he said, because I'd get beaten by my father or even beaten by my foster mother. He said, so at the age of 10 years old, I went to school and all of a sudden I saw in someone's briefcase, there was a sandwich. He says, I didn't think. I grabbed the food out and started eating as quickly as I could. I was a thief at the age of 10. And even though they made fun of me and even though I got in trouble, he said, my hunger was stronger than my pride. What started off as sandwiches <clears throat> eventually got worse. Until one day, after the principal called my parents in because I'd stolen something a little bit more valuable, my mother gave me the beating of my life. And that night, he says, I grabbed whatever I could from the house that I thought I'd be able to sell, stuffed it into my briefcase, my school knapsack, and I ran away. And he looked at the rabbi with tears in his eyes and he says, Rabbi, no one ever came looking for me. They carried on cashing the check, happy that they had one less mouth to feed. And now I'm on the streets, he says, and I got good. Stealing watches, stealing beepers, stealing phones, whatever I could get my hands on. Six times I've been in prison, he says, Rabbi. He says, I've seen the worst side of the world. I've seen the worst side of myself. He says, and I don't actually believe that there's another side of me. Rabbi Tversky is sitting there the whole time quiet. Finally, he finishes. And Rabbi Tversky says, you're wrong. He says, remember the last time you were in a jewelry store looking at the diamond necklace? 
And instantly his face, he blushes. Rabbi's called, called him out. He says, yes. He says, do you think it started out like that? Someone somewhere was down in a mine and saw a lump, black as coal, covered in mud. And what was it? It was a 10 carat diamond. But using your logic, what would you do? You'd step right past it, toss it in the garbage. All it took was for someone to pick it up, to realize its worth, and to spend a little bit of time polishing off all the soot and the garbage and the muck upon it. And then it took someone to cut a couple of uh, painful facets into its side for the person to cut something out of himself, to do a little teshuvah, a little psalm, a little bit of a tefillah, a little bit of mamon, to give a little bit away of himself, to cut pieces off because that's how diamonds shine. They take a piece off of themselves. If you leave the diamond in its fullest amount, yes, there's more of it. But it's pointless in that shape, in that form. And he says, if you're willing to do that, you'll start to see that there's a diamond there too. And Josh, by now, is silenced. It's the first time someone's taken the time to talk to him about him like this. Someone who wasn't their job, they weren't getting paid for it. And Josh checks in and starts working. And slowly but surely, my dear friends, he does a turnaround. Two years go by. He's now hired by the halfway house that he's staying in since he's no longer in prison. And one day, the head of the halfway house, this woman, Shelly, she says to him, you know, someone just called in and they said that they have a lot of furniture. An old woman passed away. Could you go to the house and pick up this furniture and bring it to the halfway house? They want to donate it. He says, sure. He jumps in a, in a truck, drives to the halfway house, gets to this apartment. It smells. Everything smells like mold and mothballs. And he calls Sherry, Shelley up and he says, Ma'am, you know, nothing here is worth taking. Everything is broken. Everything is... And the woman says to him, she says, you know, just take it. They're going to feel bad that we didn't want anything. Just take whatever. Take a few things. Tell them we don't need the rest. Josh looks around. He finds the things that are the least broken, that are the least disgusting. He finds one couch, a small couch. He finds one end table and he finds one rocking chair. He says, this is all that we need. And they say, really, you don't need more. What do they want? They just want him to clear the apartment. He says, no, this is all we need. Thank you very much. He's dragging these things down the stairs. Pivot. Okay. He goes all the way down, puts it into the truck and drives with all this stuff. It's practically falling apart already. He drags it upstairs into the halfway house. The rocking chair, the end table, which by now is already sawdust is coming out of it. He pulls the couch up himself up the stairs and he drags it into the corner. And as he drags it into the corner, he hits a part in the, in the floor and you can hear a spring go boing. So he open, picks up the cushion to straighten out the spring to see if the couch is, not, is even worth keeping. And he sees a cloth uh, wrapped up amongst the springs. He reaches his hand in, pulls it out, and unfolds it, and he sees bills stacked with rubber bands, 20s, 50s, 100s, 
And he counts slowly, quietly, making sure nobody sees his heart is racing. It's $3,200. For someone like this, it's a gold mine. Nobody knows. The family just wanted to give it away. And they get away with it. Nobody has seen that it's here. There's no cameras in the halfway house. He puts it in his pocket. He walks out and he says to Shelly, he says, you know, there was, they gave us the garbage, there's nothing here. It's a shame we even brought it back. We're probably going to have to throw it out. And Shelly says to him, it's true, Josh. But when we told them we were coming, we had to honor our word and do the right thing, even if it's just going to make more work for us and it's not going to be the easy thing. And her words rip through him. And the money is burning a hole in his pocket he hasn't stolen in two years. And he takes the money out of his pocket and he says, oh, I found this in the couch. Shelly opens it up. She says, what do you mean? There's $3,200 here. He says, I know. It must be the old woman's. We should return it to the inheritor, to the people for the inheritance. She says, wow, I can't believe it. I knew your whole life, all you did was steal. And here you are with a chance. No one knew that you had it. You're giving it back. And Josh says, we got to do the right thing even when it's not the easy thing. Mamon mimenu. She calls up Rabbi Tversky to say, I just want to tell you about what your student, what your charge has done today. Rabbi Tversky comes to meet him, gives him a big hug. And he says, I guess we finally polished our diamond. This is a man who was thrown into prison for 27 months for stealing shampoo and a t-shirt from Walmart. This is a man who took every chance he had to swipe five-figure discount. But a time comes where someone sees that there's light in him. Someone chooses to light him up. And in that moment, Rabotai, he becomes someone special. Tonight, when you light the Hanukkah candles, I want you all to ask yourselves and your children, what's it going to be? Rav Shlomo Freifeld used to say that we have an obligation to mimic God. We mimic God by being kind. We mimic God by being gracious. We mimic God by being forgiving. But Rav Shlomo Freifeld says that in the prayers every morning we say, You God, you bring life to every living thing. Every moment that we breathe is God saying, breathe, live, innovate. It's God breathing that into our nostrils. Says Rav Freifeld, if we are obligated to mimic God, then we too are obligated to breathe life into every human being we come into contact with. That is our job. That is our gift. That is our honor. Rabotai, as we walk into this holiday, let us remember that kings don't dream of themselves. Kings dream of everyone around them. May we be'ezrat Hashem bizocheh to together dream of a brighter day for the person sitting next to us, for the person sitting opposite us. May we be'ezrat Hashem make that dream come true by bringing our mamon, our tzom, our kol, our miketz, and through that bring an end to this long, bitter, and dark night. Hazaku Baruch, thank you for coming.